The First Tee with Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. Brought to you by the DP World Tour, the race to Dubai. Hello, greetings one and all and welcome along to another episode of the First Tee podcast with the DP World Tour hosted by myself, Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. On this episode, we're in conversation with a man who has been synonymous with the game of golf for over two decades as the lead commentator for BBC Five Live and the BBC Golf Correspondent himself. It's Ian Carter. We caught up with Ian on the final day's play of the DP World Tour Championship and it was a great opportunity to put the world of golf to rights, to look back on the year, to discuss some of the highlights from 2023 and then to look ahead into the future, to gaze into that crystal ball and try to figure out what on earth the sport of golf is going to look like in the coming years as all these different entities all these different factions try to thrash out this framework agreement and get a deal done which will ultimately unify the game of golf it's a really interesting time to be a fan of the sport and your guess is as good as mine as to which direction it's headed but there was plenty to chat through with Ian over the course of the next sort of 40-45 minutes or so we do need to say a big congratulations to Nikolai Hoygaard he is your winner of the DP World Tour Championship he did it in style with a 64 on the final day five consecutive birdies on his back nine to get to 21 under par and that took him past the three men tied for second place Tommy Fleetwood Victor Hovland and Matt Wallace all three of whom finished on 19 under par. Tommy had his chances. He led for parts of that final day. Couldn't quite finish strongly and couldn't quite get it done, but he'll take a lot of confidence into the off-season. And Victor, just another incredible week from a man who's been one of the most informed players, potentially the best player on the planet for the last four or five months, has Victor Hovland. Rory McIlroy collected a fifth Race to Dubai trophy. That takes him one behind Seve and three behind Colin Montgomery, the all-time order of merit record leader so I'm sure he'll have his sights set on that but I want to waste no time here I want to get straight into this conversation with the BBC golf correspondent Ian Carter Zane and I caught up with him in the media centre and let's get straight into it we are alongside the BBC's voice of golf, Ian Carter, uh, the man one third of the Chipping Forecast podcast. And Ian, I know you've been enjoying a bit of an R&R out in Dubai and here for the finale of the DP World Tour season. It's a pretty good time of the year to be out here. Fantastic time of, of year. It's funny in the, in the well, sort of latter part of summer, we realized that we hadn't had a proper holiday. And, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, this year has just been exceptionally busy. I mean, so newsy as far as golf's concerned. Solheim Cup, Ryder Cup, yeah, just relentless. And um, and we worked out the back in Britain. We hadn't really had a summer, and um, I hadn't really played any golf. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Let's just. Why don't we just go out a week early ahead of the DP World Tour Championship and have a week uh, there? I'm lucky enough to to get a couple of games in uh, on the creek and on the Majlis course. So. Uh, turned into a great holiday and then a, a fantastic week um, with the season end, which I have to say is, you know, DP World Tour Championship is always one of my favorite weeks of the year. I always feel like it's it's a bit of a treat for, you know, all the hard work that's gone in the year through through the year because the the field's small. You don't have to be in super early in the morning. It's, you're guaranteed big names. It's beautiful weather and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so it's been a great trip. It's also one of the most consistent golf tournaments, I think, for guaranteeing 
great golf and and the the big names kind of rising to the top of the leaderboard and that's probably a a function of the small field but we've seen Ram win here three times we've seen Rory we've seen you know uh, Matt Fitzpatrick has, has had a couple of wins here Westwood back in the day and yeah. uh, the course just kind of lends itself to that Matt Wallace I've, I've got to ask you about this and I, I'm not going to get caught up in results because this is the final day that we're having this little chat on so by the time that this goes to air the, the result will be well and truly in the books but what we saw from Matt Wallace yesterday nine consecutive birdies to to round out a perfect nine i've been trawling through the record books i know it's a joint european tour dp world tour record but in terms of feats that you've witnessed in your long career ian where, where does that stack up oh i think it's it's right up there um to just keep relentlessly i mean zane you'll know better than 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 me what it might be like to to you know put together a run of birdies but to do it from 10 to 18 no one in the men's game had done that amy yang's done it in the women's game birdieing all nine on the on the back nine um what a way to finish a round. there's something about doing it over a nine holes you know because you know every golfer go through that experience of when you get to nine holes you kind of count up your score and it's kind of a bit of a judgment how am i playing is it good is it bad and it's an opportunity to refresh and i would just love to know what his caddy said to him on the way to the 10th tee and to do it do it across those nine holes and it starts to play on your mind you know three four five birdies in six birdies in you know then you're thinking i've got an opportunity to do this this clean card a bit a little bit back to like is it is it as good or not nick faldo 18 pars you know it's it starts to add up you know you think, think i don't want to break this yeah. and it was it was some feat and it's probably worth mentioning that matt wallace was Ian's partner in crime at the Ryder Cup working for Five Live. So was there any... Well, we inspired it. No, we definitely inspired it. No, I actually, you know, I say that as a joke, but um, it, it, was, it was strange because Matt, um, we, we approached him to come and work for us at, at, at the Ryder Cup. And, you know, with players who who might have been there but haven't got there for whatever reason and back in 2018 Matt was very very close um, it's, it's a double edged sword I can remember asking one player who'd played the previous Ryder Cup wasn't in the picture for the next one you know do you want to come and work with us and he said I'd, I'd love to ordinarily but I couldn't face being there and not actually be playing and Matt said yes to us for one reason he didn't really want to work for five live but he wanted to be inside the ropes even though they pay the big bucks the big yeah. bucks I mean <laughs> serious yeah yeah do they pay you <laughs> uh, no but he wanted to he wanted to be inside the ropes and he wanted to feel a Ryder Cup and he wanted to be inspired by a Ryder Cup and he is desperate to play a Ryder Cup and you know it was interesting after his round of 60 when I spoke to him he said I'm not afraid of going low if I get one birdie I want another and I feed off that and that is a that is a really unique mindset that only top professionals can have because it has to be founded in technique for a start off but secondly that mentality and you know, I, I don't know how good you are, Robbie, but I know from my my point of view, you know, you, you put a good couple of holes together and then you suddenly, oh my God, I don't want to ruin this. And and that's not the right mentality. It should be get another birdie, go, you know, and, and don't make, you know, be positive. Well, we were talking about yesterday and the point was, was that uh, Chris was asking us on the show was that you know, what, what would his mindset be? And I said, well, actually, Matt's just doing what he's trying to do, but it, that it's not easy to keep 
doing that time after time over a period of two hours. He's trying to hit that drive with a draw up the fairway. And then he's trying to hit the eight iron on this ball flight and land it on that hill and roll it down to it. Then he's trying to hit his six foot putt on the right edge. He's actually just doing everything he can do. And all these, all these players are so good and they put all the time in. And we're still we're talking about a two hour period where it's all come together for him in a sea of a, a, a massive amount of fantastic top players that we've never seen that before. I was talking to Matt Fitzpatrick uh, about his performance at the Ryder Cup when he came into the team on the Friday afternoon in the four balls, partnering Rory McIlroy and hold every putt for the first six holes and you know, took the Europeans five up in that match straight away, something like that anyway. And he, I, I just said, well, you know, what is that mind space like? And he said, I just knew if I hit it on the green, the next shot would go in the hole. I knew it. I mean, can you imagine having that, yeah. that feeling inside, you know, and that's just what this game of golf can do to you if you're good in it. And it's one of the most redundant questions that you can ask a player. How do you replicate that mindset? They never know, and they always say, well, if I knew that, then I'd be the world number one. <laughs> so and, and that's the thing, I think, for anyone who plays golf, that, you know, you will have your good rounds, and you'll have your very best rounds, and... And I mean, Zane, you're a, you're a player, you're a coach, and I'd be really interested in your answer on this. When you're coaching someone and they know that they have played some brilliant golf in the past, are you trying to coach them to go back to where they were and that mindset and that level of technique that they had then? Or is that impossible? And actually you're looking for something new that might then be able to replicate and improve on what was the best in the past? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, two questions, it's very personality-based. There are some players who could, could achieve these big long runs of, of birdies and so forth that need almost a complete opposite mindset to Matt Wallace. So Matt would be very aware of what he's doing um, and then he's going to be working on that and he's going to be using that slight uncomfortableness as fire to go forward and that's how he's going to respond to it and it's almost like a, a fight against himself but that's in his personality he's very much he's kind of a I'm going to say he's an aggressive person I don't mean that in a negative connotation but Matt's that way he wants to drag out the best he doesn't mind a little bit of rough and tumble that's kind of in his personality whereas you're going to get someone else like um, maybe like a, maybe like a Victor or someone like that I'm guessing a little bit but who's going to be thinking about one shot at a time not getting ahead of himself I mean, I mean and it's interesting I think like the one shot at a time is also I think that depending on how you view it I think someone like a Tiger Woods which we've seen would be somebody who's been fantastic under pressure clearly is in the moment but then he'll also say that I watch leaderboards I look at leaderboards which is the piece which gets you thinking ahead of yourself but what he would do and is you know you think I'm, gonna, I'm in a really great position Therefore, I'm now going to play one shot at a time. That is very different to, oh my God, I'm in a really great position. I, I, can't, I can't think of the next thing. I better be, play one shot at a time. They're, con they're trying to do the same thing to completely different mindsets. The interesting thing about Wallace after his round of 60 was that he didn't realize that his bunker shot was for 59. Did he not? He didn't know. He said it was only afterwards. It was when Dan Bradbury said to him, if you'd hold that bunker shot, that would have been a 59. And that, I think, is very instructive. I, I, you know, I think it's a completely different game that I play, but I know that in my very best rounds of golf, I've not know, known what I've scored until I've added it up. Because you're in, that, you're in that headspace where you're just thinking about your shot, you're just playing one shot at, at a time. So I'm a strong believer in, 
in that you, you, well, I didn't, I didn't realize it was for that. And the number of golfers I've interviewed down the years, when by definition you interview them after they've had great rounds, and go, oh, I didn't realize that was for a 63. He looked genuinely annoyed as well not to hold a bunker shot, which again is just a typical golf you know, perfectionist. <laughs> he's just annoyed. He's made nine birdies in a row, but he's, he's frustrated with himself for not holding the bunker shot. Um, there's so much really to discuss in the world of golf. It's been quite an eventful week from a kind of admin perspective as well, Ian. Um, just looking back on the year, though, and I wouldn't say there's been perhaps a dominant player this year because you could make a case for a handful of players. Who, who's your shout for player of the year in 2023? I think that's a, a really good question. Um, and I, I, I think I'd be inclined to go with, with John Rahm, even though he hasn't done that much since winning the Masters, but the way he started the, the year with those wins on the PGA Tour and then won the Masters in the way that he did and then, you know, played a, a, a very important role for Europe in, in the Ryder Cup. That's the, the name that springs out um, to me. You know, Scotty Scheffler, massively consistent year, but not enough, not enough wins. Um, Rory McIlroy, a couple of really good wins, but as he said himself, a good year, but not a great year. Um, so, you know, Victor Hovland has, I, in terms of, the progress made he has established himself as one of the top four players in in the world and has an awful lot to to look back on with with a great deal of pride really good rider cup winning the tour championship as well um but it's it's been a it's been a strange year because every tournament has has seemed really newsworthy obviously everything that's been going on in the background as far as golf politics are concerned brilliant Solheim Cup then fantastic Ryder Cup I mean it's 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 been one of the best years of my career I think I agree in terms of you know just the intrigue and the interest and the standard of golf um, you know we came away from the open um, I'm sort of digressing here and we did commentary on a rainy, miserable Open Championship that was won by six shots by Brian Harmon. <laughs> by Brian Harmon. I was cursing him from my sofa. And you're like, that... I mean, with no disrespect to Brian Harmon, because what I'm going to say proves there's no disrespect. But if you'd offered me that scenario before the week at Royal Liverpool, I'd have said, well, I'll, I'll stay at home, thanks. And actually, I walked 54 holes with Brian Harmon his last three rounds, and he was brilliant. I'm not saying the crowds were brilliant. I, didn't, I thought the crowds were really bad, but um, he was brilliant, and he played the golf of the champion golfer of the year. That was probably the best golf anyone played all year. And, um, and even in a rainy, soggy Royal Liverpool with Brian Harmon as the winner by six. He may prove me wrong, great. Ian. I, I feel like we might not see him again for a while. I, and he, he may, you know, he's one of those major winners who kind of pop up, play the golf of their life for a week, and then they go back to well, really number 26, on, kind know? of. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I, you know, I think on the right course at the right time, he's, he's going to be one of those that you'd actually look to to do something because he's I mean he's so gutsy so when you look at his history he was obviously a top amateur he's, he's not really spoken of is he but when you go back he yeah, kind of has that pedigree doesn't he you know the, the top players normally have a pedigree through their amateur career but he's somebody because he's not maybe the stature that the, the big players that we're used to in terms of his golf game you don't really see it but it's like you, you, you think he's come out of nowhere but when you look back he, he was I think he was a, a world amateur number one 
he was a fantastic college player like he has the kind of pedigree and he kind of showed that there in a little flash but we'll see yeah I mean he's a little guy diminutive figure left-hander oh god he putted like god that week and 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 I mean he just did nothing wrong it was uh, there was one moment I think in his second round where he he drove into a bunker on the 12th came out came out short and then hold his chip for uh, for a par and you know on he went and whenever he found trouble the way he bounced back immediately afterwards just as, I mean if you ask for an individual performance of the year then then that would be it Surprise of the year happened in June, I'm assuming. It had nothing to do with any golf shots being hit. When uh, we saw the headlines, woke up one morning and it, I, I don't think I've ever been taken aback by, by breaking news, certainly in the world of golf, than I was by the sight of Jay Monaghan sitting next to uh, His Excellency Yasser Aramayan announcing this, this ceasefire, <laughs> if you want to call it that, this, uh, this coming together, this truce. Um, subsequently, it's all gone rather quiet, and, and we've we've been wondering. And, and uh, as Rory McIlroy said very succinctly in his press conference, "loose lips sink ships." So, and then promptly withdrew from the the advisory board of the PGA Tour. But what have you made of that U-turn, Ian? And and what does the future hold? I mean, 2024 is is set in stone from a schedule perspective. But how does the world of golf reorganise itself ultimately? Well, that's a very good question. I, I've been writing a book on the whole thing um, uh, Golf Wars which is going to come out I think in April next year it's probably going to be comp- and, and, I know and I, you know and I I remember vividly that that Tuesday having a late lunch sitting down just before three o'clock in the lounge nice quiet comfortable Tuesday and I, I looked at my phone oh my god and actually i'd been texting with a very good friend of mine uh, james corrigan who's the golf correspondent of the daily telegraph we just we'd literally just been um you know chatting away on text and i just went have you seen your email and he's like oh my god and and that was it and that was another of what have been several days in the past 18 months two years where I've been broadcasting on BBC outlets that I didn't even knew existed, you know, business programs or what, whatever it is, world service programs, suddenly going, can you come on and talk about this? Because it's a story that goes much further than just golf. And obviously we're, we're most interested in what this means for the game of golf, but just the geopolitical business aspect to it as well. It touches so many different facets of corporate society um, and global corporate society that, it, and it's still got a long way to run. Um, in answer to your question, I don't think anybody knows how this is going to finally pan out. I, you know, we're here at DP World Tour Championship. I saw Jay Monaghan walking around with Guy Kinnings from the, the, the DP World Tour and Keith Pelley's here as well. So they're going to be having some very important talks here in the Middle East. Um, that will help shape whatever direction is going to be taken from the strategic alliance between the two tours. But then you've got the public investment fund, you've got Live. Uh, all we know is the calendars for 2024, really, and that it's going to be pretty much as it was. Um, if you're a leading professional golfer, you're going to get very, very rich. Um, and that's it. But thereafter, is this, are we in the foothills 
of having a world tour? I think that's the fundamental question. It, you know, from 2025 onwards, you know, it's interesting that we've got the 10 guys who are going to get their PGA Tour cards as a result of how they finish up in the DP World Tour Championship and the race to Dubai. And that, to me, feels like a promotion relegation kind of thing. Now, are we headed towards some kind of formalization of the tours whereby this is the championship level and there is a Premier League that goes around as a global tour? That's what it feels yeah. like to me. That's the direction. But it needs everybody to come together. And as long as there are three different en entities, then the game's fractured. It's not going to punch to its, its full there's potential. A, there's a couple of tug of wars going on. I think um, the, the supremacy of the US has been challenged. And, and that I think we've all been operating under the assumption that golf is a global game. But the more I sort of think about it, the more it's a sort of American game, which has been exported globally in, in many senses from a kind of market share influence perspective the three of the four majors are in the US and, and the players think, want, uh, uh, kind of want to be in America that's what always cause we kind of got these 10 spots now which is like you know seems like the real promotion but if you're being really honest the players want to go that way anyway you know now it's just making it more it's probably more, more convenient for the players they prefer to just be based in America play the big tournaments over there and not globetrot around the world the fans I think maybe want something different obviously people who live in Australia it's want to best, see great golf in Australia majors. all the majors are in America so why would you not want to be in America playing against those players but you're right it's a tug of war isn't it because all those PGA Tour players they love the convenience and they love the money of being America based but if you're going to have a world tour then you're going to need, I would say, one in England, one in Scotland. So let's say Wentworth Scottish Open on this world tour. You're going to need to play out here in the Middle East. You're going to need to play in, in Asia. You're going to need to play in, in Australia and potentially South Africa. And you're going to need to play in Spain. And that's got to then potentially, or Italy, if, you're, if you want it to be truly global now those players are going to a lot of them are going to have to find their passports and they spend most of the year not needing their passports and um, but god the potential that is there if you did if you did approach it that way and that's what the DP World Tour has is that that global reach that's its calling card that and the Ryder Cup which is obviously a massive cash cow but if you did have a world tour with the best 50 players going around the world and everybody else playing tour events as per now, the mule events as they're called in, in America, where you're earning the right to, to, to get promotion up onto the signature events, which are a global tour. Wow, that's really powerful. And then you can then meld in some kind of team franchise kind of aspect to it as well, which then brings the live side of things in. And don't forget that TGL, which starts up in, in January, they are team franchises with players in there that could you know, you could be transferable into a, rather than a, a you know, simulated league, could be transferable into some other kind of league. So the potential is that all the ingredients are there, but what we need is a baker that can really make it rise to its full potential. Yeah, I think uh, the other the other tug of war is the format. Um, the, the, the sort of traditional 72-hole stroke play versus all of these new ideas and innovations. And 
I've always thought with Live, it, it would work better as an IPL style kind of six week window, maybe right now at the end of the season, at the end of the year, because I, I feel like golf needs an off season. This idea that there's wraparound seasons where the DP World Tour starts a couple of days after it finishes, that's never felt satisfying for me. So from that perspective, just the, the order of things and where Liv ultimately fits in, if it indeed does fit in, because they seem hell-bent on pursuing their own path. And that's the other thing. They're, they're quite intransigent. So it's going to take a while to bring all of that together. Exactly. But money will determine all of it, won't it, ultimately? Money, money solves yeah. everything. It um, feels like from the, from the TGL point of view, I mean, this is maybe a little conspiracy theory, really, but it's almost like the TGL is a, a small test of what you've just said there. So it's like a safe way of testing out we put teams together and market them would that work i mean get it all done in, in, a, in a short space of time in this off season and we could do that and, and it's kind of and it's featured more at the newer golfers it's kind of like a non-risk way and it's not really and you know the pj tour uh, yes it's serious but from you know i'm sure a lot of people are taking it very seriously but really everyone's like it's not really serious golf and it is almost like a, a small test run they've not really pushed it as in it's going to be the biggest and bestest thing ever and it almost feels like a, a small rehearsal for what they could possibly do in the future. And do you think Live as a format has been in any way, shape or form successful? No. That's, that's no, the other Because I'm thing. a hardcore golf fan. and mm. I, 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 I don't think I'm too long in the tooth to not appreciate Live. And I, I've always felt, being a golf fan, that golf... And, and maybe, this, maybe this is something that can never be captivated, but has never quite kind of bottled what the Ryder Cup produces and, and kind of taken it to the other parts of the game. It's um, And partly that's what makes the Ryder Cup so brilliant, uh, that it is unique and that it does stir those flames of patriotism and partisanship that, that golf, the other golf just doesn't do. But Liv hasn't excited me because it hasn't really sort of put that team component together. To, I've actually been over to Saudi and... and uh, I was at the uh, the live event uh, last year in Saudi, and it, it, I have to admit, it felt like an extended kind of boys' trip with music playing on the putting green. It just, it was just, it was the end. At the end of the day, sport needs to mean something, right? It need, it needs to. There needs to be jeopardy. There needs to be this. Uh, you know, it, it, it needs to mean someone to someone, whether it's a fan of a franchise or, or the players themselves. Live, for me, just hasn't meant enough to anyone, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I can, I, I can see that. I mean, it, I think for, for certain players, you know, there was some real high-pressure stuff to make sure you retain your card. And, you know, it's a very lucrative way to, to make a living as a, as a golfer. Um, I just, I, I mean, I have a problem with the fact that they play in three balls. I just think that is a terrible way of, of showcasing golf. You know, the great thing about this tournament here in Dubai at the end of the season is they're out in two balls, they're round in four hours, and it's got real momentum to it. And whenever, and we see it in Abu Dhabi and Dubai Desert Classic so often, when they end up playing the last two rounds because of the squeeze on daylight, in three balls and it's just dodgy it's fighting you know, and and when i'm at home and i'm watching it i've got to invest five five and a half hours into watching the final group play well i'm not going to do that and i just think that is really counterproductive for the sport that's just my own little hobby horse i don't think the shotgun start thing has has worked properly um I think that as a spectator on the ground, you can see much more 
when they go out in a in a staggered starts than when they're all playing at the at the same time um and i just you know i you i've been to live events and the the hype is great and the noise and the music and all of all of that but the bottom line is that when the shotgun goes they're just playing golf and so what's gone on before is completely incongruous to it it just falls silent and and suddenly someone's motionless over a ball and then they hit it and on we go now there's a something very beautiful about the pace and cadence of tournament golf and they're not they're not looking to exploit that it's it's they're trying to promote something that it isn't it feels like to me um so and and they don't work as teams they're playing individually that so and and it hasn't taken advantage of the fact that women could be a massive part of this sport um and tgl hasn't done that either and the olympics didn't do that either so i just feel like golf in general is missing a massive trick without bringing the women in because they're all easy wins they can all make the game so much more attractive they can take head on all of the things that critics say about golf about it not being inclusive and and you could you can sort that out at a stroke you know you could be playing we've got the season finale of the LPGA tour right now the season finale of the European tour they're both small fields they could be happening at the same place and they could be sharing the same spotlight and we could be seeing golf as a sport that men and women can play together and that is something that no other sport really can say and so you know use the sports usps and get you know and drive it forward that way but it's completely stuck in its male dominated american dominated ways and it's just interested in pouring more and more money into the back pockets of the people who on this sporting planet need it least it's nuts <laughs> it ultimately. really is it really the, is the big, biggest frustration is the olympics not making it a mixed event that that the olympics doing a 72 hole stroke play event to determine the gold medal when when you could have ha- you could have had the best male and female player from that country team up in a mixed format whether you want to do individual stroke play or whether you want to do better ball or foursomes or whatever it may be that was a huge opportunity missed for me yeah i mean i always felt that it should be match play for the for the for the olympic gold just to have it as 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 a bit different but i've i've changed my opinion on that i think I think the Olympics is massive for for golf. It's really a big I'm a big supporter of golf in the Olympics. And I for example, when we were in Rio on the Saturday afternoon of the women's event final round, Charlie Hull was about 6th or 7th, but she was only a couple of shots out of 3rd. And so um there was Premier League football going on at home. and we were interrupting our premier league football coverage to come over to me on the course in rio to find out how charlie was getting on because she was in sniffing distance of a of a bronze medal now that's a golf event that would never have seen the light of day otherwise so i you know i get that but you've got the men's tournament you've got the women's tournament there is a crossover period where you could have a 36 hole team event where it would be mixed and there'd be a mixed medal in the same way as you have mixed doubles in the tennis and 
and so on and so forth. And that you've got to try and make that work because the dividend from that would is so worth sacking off a, a tour event on both tours to to make sure mm. that you've got the time to be able to do that in my opinion absolutely i couldn't agree more we'll move on uh, tiger has announced his return for the gazillionth time to the tour i can't help but feel like his presence is is more of a ceremonial one these days but then you know we've, we've written him off before and he's done something spectacular but this latest comeback what are your expectations for it um other than other than more because one thing you do know about tiger is that, that he he does not sign up for this idea that that he's there to kind of be a ceremonial golfer be a be an icon who's who's simply making up the numbers he's coming back to to do something in the sport yeah um, do you he'll think tell us he's there for the w won't he exactly he will. yeah i saw a quote this morning like no point in playing a tournament unless you're there to win yeah you know that's but is that is that just built into his mindset like he doesn't he doesn't know anything else that that's the only thing he's ever you know goes right back to the Curtis Strange interview where you know second sucks and third's even worse and, and Curtis Strange's like you'll learn and then there's a really good, great video on social media that it then pans to like all the wins and him fist pumping and trophy and trophy and trophy and trophy you think oh who learned that one <laughs> that's brilliant Curtis Strange must hate seeing that pop up yeah. on his social media feed but it, I think it's, career, he's still in that mindset yeah and it's very instructive isn't it because actually what Curtis Strange said was was perfectly normal wasn't it and a perfectly valid observation until this remarkable man arrived on the on the scene and did what he did um, it feels like we're going through the, the Tiger Woods cycle really doesn't it it's uh, it feels like what's this the fifth time this has happened it must be five times it's happened he's out and he's back yeah, and right. oh I'll come back in my tournament uh, oh here's a video of Tiger Woods in October starting to hit shots again oh oh playing hero oh um, okay yeah not won't, oh no I'll play with Charlie play with Charlie in the father and son um, okay Riviera my tournament yeah yeah play there next sim maybe Bay Hill probably just uh, augusta um yeah hoping to be at the at, at the open and we'll see how we feel you know um a bit we're being a bit cynical here obviously he's come back from remarkable um physical issues um time and time again and mental issues um he is just the most extraordinary sporting figure isn't he um and it's great to have him have him back it's great to have him as a as a, a focal point for the game because he does bring interest from out with the game um, but I think his biggest influence on the game now is what he's doing on the PGA board and he is shaping how the PGA are going to uh, embrace this future that may involve the Saudi Arabian PIF or it may involve outside investment from, from elsewhere and you know you look at at Woods track record and he has had nothing but antipathy towards Saudi Arabia in his entire career and that makes me wonder about how viable the framework agreement with Saudi Arabia is with the players holding the majority position on the board with Rory McIlroy having said that he feels that they should come together and heal the fractures in the game and now Rory McIlroy is not on that board but Tiger Woods is so is that going to be possible? Is Woods going to hold out for, no, we'll get our money from elsewhere. I don't want anything to do with Saudi Arabia. Pure speculation on my part, but it is founded on how 
he has treated the notion of South Saudi Arabia throughout his career. Is he so. the most influential figure in the game? Not not from a playing perspective, obviously, but but just from a, 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 a an ability to influ to win friends and influence people. Is Tiger the the, the kingpin in golf? I think so because he is uh, he carries universal respect from all of the players. Yeah, you know, Zane will tell you. You know that everybody just looks up to Tiger Woods. No one's, you know, taking a pop at him. Outside, because everybody, I think, outside Phil Mickelson, to a certain point, is very grateful for him being there. I think everyone knows that everyone's in the position they're in. Essentially, he was the he was the trailblazer for that, and he's moved golf from being you know a pretty good sport where you could do quite well for yourself to now being in the rich list. You know, almost every golfer here in Dubai has a, has a fantastic lifestyle. Even to 20 years ago to keeping your card to someone now that keeps their card now someone who keeps their card is a wealthy person heading towards being a wealthy person and they're a completely different lifestyle maybe 20 years ago you keep your card and you probably still drive around the same car you probably still live in the same house whereas now it's very different and that does I think every single golfer every single professional golfer knows that they've got a chance of changing their life essentially because one man came and just changed the face of golf yeah, it's true. It really is true. Um, and let's see. Uh, you're absolutely right, though. Tiger's position is going to be a very interesting one when it comes to getting the. And, and I, I would imagine that the links to the, the Fenway Sports Group and, and venture capitalists, I'm sure his paw prints, to not pardon a pun, are, are all over those, you know? Yeah, and, you know, and if you are a big money corporate entity and you've got the keys to uh, say to a client, um, fancy a round of golf with Tiger Woods? That's, that's massive, isn't it? <laughs> it that's, is. That's kind of, I mean, it is money can buy it, but uh, it takes a hell of a lot of money to, to buy it. But it's a kind of money can't buy kind of experience. And that's why he is such an, inf one of the reasons why he's one, such an influential figure and why it was so important for him to step up for the PGA Tour and go on to the policy board. And basically, I think anything that Jay Monaghan and the, the, the other hedge honchos of the tours want to do has to have the blessing of Tiger Woods. Has to. Last couple of minutes with you, Ian. I've got to get some memories. Your, your, your kind of maybe the best moment in your storied career being the, the voice of Five Live. And, Can I just and quickly just tell a moment that I've had with, with Ian? So, one, um, so I was fortunate enough to go on the Five Live team at St. George's for the first time. Um, uh, and uh, just coming out of COVID and so Ian's the, the correspondent I'm the summariser so he does like the, all the heavy lifting and then I just come in at the end on a, on a small piece just to add in a little bit of hopefully expertise and I think we and my first moment we trekked up the uh, 10th hole at, on the Thursday at uh, Royal St George's and, we, and Rory McIlroy was there and so you're kind of um, there's two things I think there's no one in the world who can understand their level of tone to get as close to the golf as possible and keep commentating and broadcasting as in he's unbelievable we get so close closer <laughs> than anybody else we've ever been with and there was a moment and, and Rory held apart from about 10 feet so we're close to Rory we had to be so close on that 10th hole because it's, it's the up to the green yeah. yeah exactly it's mounded up so we, we got in position so I'm like what are you going to do from here and there's, and there's the build up and anyone who listens to Five Live will know will we'll recognise Ian's voice and it was Thursday afternoon nothing going on and Rory hold like an 8 foot putt and just the, the, the tone in which it went 
and it was like you know and he's in and ian puts his clipboard up you know as so his voice doesn't uh, doesn't go across and the player can't hear and rory mcelroy over his eight foot putt and it's on its way and it's into the hole it's into the hole it's a birdie for rory mcelroy and i'm there next to him getting excited as well then there's a moment i'm thinking it's, frickin', it's thursday what am I so excited for? But it's, just, it's, something, it's something very different about it. It was like watching this magic show go on. I'm like, I'm part of this. But it was just, I was so excited on a Thursday at Rory holding an eight-foot putt. And it's nothing in the tournament. But yeah, that was my small story of working with Ian for the first but that's time. The, you see, that's the, that's the beauty of it. And everyone says to, or a lot of people say to me, well, golf on the radio can't work or shouldn't work. But it, it, it's the perfect medium for golf because I firmly believe, and I've never really worked in television, but I firmly believe the pictures are better on the radio because what we're trying to do is get into people's imagination and tap into that. So if you're, I am always thinking about the guy that's sitting or the girl that's sitting in the car and they've just parked the car and they need, really need to get in and get the, get the cooking on but actually, I'm telling a story to them, and you're going to sit in that car until I finish this story. <laughs> you're going to, your mission is to keep them and, in the car. <laughs> and the story is that there's a guy on this green, and it might be only Thursday afternoon, but he's got a putt for a birdie here. And you, as you say, you have to be really quiet, and you have to keep bass in your voice, because if you whisper, it's terrible. And you keep that bass in your voice, and you go very, very, very low. And then once the shot's been hit, then you can start putting the volume in, and then the ball goes into the hole, and the crowd goes up, and you go up with the crowd and so it, that person that's listening in the car they might have missed their junction because you've 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 tried you know and i've done that i've listened to the cricket and i've missed a junction. i've gone oh you know because i've been so wrapped up in what the the guys have been saying on on the radio and that's what you're trying to achieve all the time and you're 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 accompanying some people who are doing the most mundane things in the world they just stick the radio on to give them a bit of company you know it's the best medium in the world uh it's the most intimate medium in the world and that's why i love it so. it's brilliant and i i grew up with five live um and, and listening to golf you're absolutely right it's for me and cricket uh it's because it goes on for so long as well you can really get absorbed and really lost in it um you're, you the, the moment that you've had in your career where you perhaps uh the real most pinch yourself moment if you could if you could pick one out ian i think uh we had the most amazing commentary box on the 18th at medina that overlooked the green and i had and and to to commentate on martin keimer's putt there and uh when uh woods conceded to molinari and europe had turned it round and won the Ryder cup the miracle at medina and the the abiding memories from that not just calling those moments but having that sense that Seve was looking down on it all and just seeing streams of Americans, because from our elevator position, just heading for the exit and then knots of yellow and blue clad European fans going nuts and singing and singing the ole, ole, ole. And then I remember just looking down and there was a guy in a raincoat dancing to... Uh, the ole 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 and punching the air in time and looking down and it was Bernard Gallagher who was working with us and he wasn't quite on that hot yeah. but and how much it meant to him and just having the clearest view of all of it and you you walk away from that and you do you pinch yourself you knew and I think to myself how has this ever happened because I'm a terrible golfer 
And I, I don't, you know, how has this happened that I'm witnessing and telling people about these great moments? And I felt exactly the same in Rome this year. Uh, it was one of the most amazing things. I felt exactly the same standing alongside Zane at the Open Championships that we've done together. It, it, and I really hope that I never lose sight of that because it's it's such a yeah you can hear it now I feel emotional just thinking about it but it's such a privileged position um and yeah I'm just so lucky really. that, that is the magic magic yeah. of golf and we're grateful you do it we're grateful that you yeah. take the time and put all your heart and, and passion into it absolutely no no and I think that's a, a good note to, to wrap things up but Ian it's uh it's been a pleasure having a chat with you and uh yeah, um, there's a lot to sort out in the world of golf, but you know, you allude to moments like that, and we'll always have those, no matter what administrative nonsense gets well, in the way. The thing, you know? That is the thing that those people who are deciding the future of the game, they have some very, very precious jewels that they have to maintain, and if they if they screw it up, then they're accountable for for spoiling something that is very, very magical for an awful lot of people, and you know all the squabbling and scrambling for the money that is going on at the moment just don't lose sight of the great events that we have and make sure they don't get spoiled because they they contribute so much to to the enjoyment of so many people i think a massive thanks to ian carter for what was a completely illuminating chat on so many issues in the world of golf saying i think next year is going to be intriguing we're going to know more as this deadline comes, looms on the horizon, this framework agreement that everyone is talking about. Jay Monaghan has actually been at the DP World Tour Championship this week, the chief commissioner of the PGA Tour. Hopefully they've had some productive conversations, hopefully with the public investment fund as well. And we wait to see what the updates are on that front. As for yourself and myself, I look forward to a game of golf with you in a couple of days' time, Mr. Zane Scotland. Big game, so you'll, you'll be hearing a full rundown of that in the next episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It will be all over that. You can follow Zane and I on Instagram. And uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be giving you a full blow by blow account only if I win, of course, of uh, and that's very unlikely of our match on Tuesday. So we've got that to look forward to. We're also going to be in conversation with Mac Boucher, social media star, the king of sling. The man that can shape the golf ball like no other. He's an inspiring golfer to play with. He plays some shots that, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite creative, but I've never seen before. So we're going to be in conversation with Mac. We're chatting to him this week and loads more coming your way as we build up to the end of the year and look forward to a brand new season and a brand new year in the world of professional golf. We've got some good guests that we're working on both uh, across the world of golf and also big golf fans from other sports, perhaps, that we're fingers crossed trying to get on the First Tee podcast as well. But for now, Zane, it's been an absolute pleasure broadcasting with you over these four days at the DP World Tour Championship. Until Tuesday. Until Tuesday and the big one at the Els Club. We say goodbye for now. The First Tee.